Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good. Awesome. Hey, if you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Mark chapter 12, uh, where the big question before us today is this. What happens after we die? Um, That's an important question because I don't know if you know this, we're all going to die. Welcome to church. Uh, We have real talk here. We believe that growth begins when we can get honest with ourselves so we can be honest with God and with his help, maybe we can be honest with one another. And so look, I know we don't like to think about this. I know we try to avoid thinking about it, Um, but you and I will die. Our day will come. And the question is, what happens next? Um, Now, we live in a culture that's deeply deeply suspicious of anyone who would claim to have an answer to that question. Um, Listen to how one American icon put it. Um, Hugh Hefner, uh, welcome to church, Uh, Hugh Hefner was once asked, what happens after we die? And here was his answer. I think um, this is really instructive of how most in our culture would answer. He says this, I haven't a clue. I'm always struck by the people who think they do have a clue. It's perfectly clear to me that religion is a myth. It's something we have invented to explain the inexplainable. My religion and spiritual side of my life come from a sense of connection to the humankind and the nature on this planet and in the universe. I am in overwhelming awe of it all. It is so fantastic, so complex, so beyond comprehension. What does it all mean if it has any meaning at all? But how can it all exist if it does not have some kind of meaning? I think anyone who suggests that they have an answer is motivated by the need to invent answers because we have no such answers. Now, I said I think that's uh, illustrative of our culture. I think most people would say that sounds very sophisticated, but I'm going to say something really controversial this morning. Uh, Jesus disagrees with Hugh Hefner. Um, about a lot as it actually comes to it, but particularly in this idea of what we can know about what happens after death. We're going to see in our text today, Jesus is going to be asked the exact same question, Uh, but Jesus's answer is quite different, and I would argue it's a lot more compelling. You will have to decide for yourself today whose answer to this question is more compelling, Hugh Hefner or Jesus, those that would follow kind of in this way of thinking or those that would follow in Christ's way of thinking. And I'll just tell you this from the outset. If you embrace Jesus's answer this morning, um, it can give whole new shape to your life because I'll just throw this out there now and we'll come back to it at the end Um, but your view of the afterlife um, is right now in this present moment and will continue to give shape to your life we all have views about the afterlife and the question is what is your view and how is that shaping your life your view about the afterlife is giving shape to your life and what we're going to look at today is Jesus's view of the afterlife one that I think can give new shape to all of our lives are you ready All right, Mark chapter 12, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. Jesus says this. Actually, before Jesus says anything, verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, 
when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, um, that right there, that's one of those questions um, that's not really a question. Uh, We still do the same sort of thing today. Like if I'm driving and I'm taking maybe not the most efficient route possible, Karen might say to me, are you sure you know where you're going? That's not a question. That's an accusation. And that's what's going on in this text here. See, you got to remember where we are in the story. We're in this section of Mark where um, Jesus' opponents are trying to discredit him. And uh, last week we saw how they sent the, um, uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians to ask him this question about taxes and politics to try to get him to say something that will make the crowds walk away. And um, it didn't work. Jesus actually said something revolutionary that shaped the whole world for 2,000 years ever since then. But these guys are persistent. And so um, the Pharisees and the Herodians couldn't trap them. So this week they send the Sadducees with another question. And um, Mark really tells us what we need to know about these guys. He says, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. See, um, most of the Jews in Jesus' day believed what the Hebrew Bible, what we would call the Old Testament, um, taught about the resurrection. Resurrection. The resurrection is all over the Hebrew Bible. You can um, look at fairoaks.org slash guide at the sermon notes today. I've got several texts you can look at if you're interested this week. Um, I want to just give you one text to just give you a flavor of kind of what the Old Testament has to say about the resurrection. This comes from the prophet Daniel, uh, one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. And at the very end of Daniel, uh, we read this in Daniel chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael the great prince who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been seen before and since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, after all of this trouble and tribulation, your people shall be delivered. Everyone's whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the stars above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And and this is just one of these places where the Bible says, hey, life is crazy. There's a lot of chaos in your day, Daniel. But there is coming a day where the dead will rise. They will shine like the stars above. They will live forever. It's going to be glorious. So hang on to your faith in God in the meantime. This is all over the Hebrew Bible. This is not a New Testament invention. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's not making stuff up that wasn't already there. But the problem is, the Sadducees did not accept God's whole revelation. Um, The Sadducees, uh, they did not... They looked at the prophets and said, I I think those guys are a little wishful thinking. They only accepted the five books of Moses, which we call today the Pentateuch, the the first five books. Or if if you're of Jewish background, you might call it the Torah. This is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What the Sadducees said is, Moses is speaking for God. The rest of the guys, they're hit or miss. So we take the first five books, which I don't know about you, but if I'm picking five Old Testament books, I ain't picking Leviticus. Right? I might go Genesis, you know I like that one. I might go Daniel, but these guys, they decided to pick the Moses books because that's the one that most resonated with their worldview. Um, these guys are a lot like um, 
Um, I, want, I want you to see uh, yourself in their shoes because uh, there's still people today that do this. Uh, we would call them red-letter Christians. These would be people that say, um, hey, I really like Jesus, not sure about Paul and the rest of the New Testament guys, and the Old Testament seems a little cranky, but I like the red letters in the Bible. So I don't accept all of God's revelation, I just accept the red parts, which I'm always like, but what about where Jesus says the whole Bible's about him? Um, but never mind, the point is, these guys, because... Um, they didn't see the revelation, resurrection being taught in the first five books of the Bible, then they said, well, it must not exist. That's wishful thinking that the prophets came up with when life was hard. But we, we are more sophisticated. We don't need to cling to fairy tales. We're just going to cling to this one part of Scripture, which doesn't teach the resurrection, so there must be no resurrection. These guys found the idea of resurrection totally absurd. Um, these guys, um, they're not unlike a lot of modern people. Right? Like, you and I, we all have friends. I bet you, if we told them what we believe happens after we die, that they would laugh at us. They would say, come on, you believe that? Now, they probably won't bring a complicated legal argument like these guys do, but they'll probably say something like, science has totally disproven that. Come on. That's how people in olden days kind of thought when they didn't have uh, kind of the modern advances we have. But surely you don't cling to those kinds of fairy tales. What the Sadducees are thinking is... Um, The resurrection, it's wishful thinking. It's frankly a little unsophisticated and unbecoming of a modern person. And so they think if we can just get Jesus to admit that he believes in this old school nonsense, then all the sophisticated people in the crowd will walk away from Jesus. And he might still have some of a movement, but all the movers and the shakers and the the people that really matter, the people that think like us, they'll walk away and we will have cut his movement in half. And so they come and they ask him this question. They ask him this question that's really an accusation. They say, Jesus, there is a woman whose husband died. Um, And so her brother marries her, or her brother-in-law marries her. Now, that sounds gross to all of us, um, but you have to remember the ancient context into which that law was given. Um, See, in the ancient world, uh, women uh, could not own their own estate, Um, If they were um, engaging in the marketplace, what would often tragically happen is women would be um, abused and taken advantage of. And so into that context, um, God gives his people a command to say, hey, if a woman dies with no offspring, um, I want you to care for my daughters because I don't want her to be taken advantage of. And so he says, hey, if that happens then the brother-in-law needs to marry her to raise up children for her, to uh, form a family with her so that she can be taken care of, so that things can go well for her. So this whole idea of the brother-in-law marrying the sister-in-law after the brother dies, it was all designed to take care of God's daughters in a day in which in every human culture women were not being well cared for. Um, In fact, in ancient cultures well after the time of Jesus, it remained common practice for a woman to take her own life if her husband died because her life is over in that society. Um, And so God speaks this law into existence to care for women in uh, a really difficult situation. Now, let me say this for those of you today that you're like, oh my goodness, but I'm single and I don't have a family and do do I need a man to care for me? Let me say this. No, Christ has come. In the New Testament, the blessing of children is superseded by the blessing of getting to make disciples. 
Okay, so um, it's not that you have to have children to be of value in the kingdom of God, but actually in the kingdom of God, the greatest thing that any of us can give our lives to is making disciples, and that's what makes us valuable. That's what makes us worthy. That's what God was always angling toward. And so if you're single this morning, this isn't a call to go find a man to complete you so that you can be valuable. This is saying in a really rough historical day, um, God stepped in to protect women. And we live in a day where Christ has come, and we all get to play the game of making disciples. Anyway, I kind of got off on that one, but I was thinking about some of you. Um, The big idea is the Sadducees, they took a practice. It was designed to help God's daughters. So wicked. They take this practice that was designed to protect the vulnerable, and they, they twist it. Um, They twist Scripture to try to turn what Scripture clearly indicates into an absurdity. They say, Jesus, uh, there was this woman, and remember, her husband died, and so um, her brother-in-law marries her, but sad day for her, the second husband died. And so the third brother marries her, but sad day for her again, the third husband passes away, and it goes on again with the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh. This is a tragic story, which, by the way, no one ever stops in this Sadducees thing to think about the woman. It's all, she's a tool in their whole um, plot to trap Jesus. It's really kind of a cruel question. This woman's lived a very difficult life, but they turn her into a tool to try to discredit the Bible. Um, And Jesus is having none of it. Um, They say, which one of the seven will she be married to in the resurrection? Um, Before we get to Jesus' answer, I I just want us to all see what they're doing here. This is their statement. Their statement is, look, Jesus, you can't possibly believe in life after death. Otherwise, whose husband would this woman husband be? Do you really believe this stuff? Like, gosh, that would be so complicated. It's so out of step with things. You, you don't really believe in this Jesus. Whose husband would she have? This is just an absolute absurdity. And the question I think we all need to be thinking about is, what do you do when someone asks you the same? Where again, like I said earlier, they're probably not coming with a complicated legal argument, but what do you do when someone says, hey, once we die, that's it, lights out. You can't cling to fairy tales. How would you respond to a person that said, you can't possibly believe in this nonsense? Well, Let's look at Jesus' answer, verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I told you, Jesus is not having it. He tells them twice that they are wrong. Like, no, no, fellas, you've got it wrong. Some of you are like, that's not very loving. We'll talk about love next week, but let me just point this out. He doesn't just tell them they're wrong. That would be unloving. He tells them, you're wrong, I don't like this hypothetical, I don't like how you've treated that woman in that scenario, but he loves these guys enough to engage them to see what their problem is. He's going to tell them what their problem is, and then he's going to invite them toward life, to lead them into life. He's going to tell them, hey, you're wrong on two accounts, and I want to talk to you about these things, because he's trying to lead them into life. And the point I want to make is that he loves you and me to do the same. 
Um, and, and the question is, the question we've been asking for several weeks now in Mark's gospel is how will you respond when Jesus comes into your life and starts doing this? Where he says to you, you're wrong. That's not the way I've designed life to work. I really hope you're wrestling with this question. Um, because if you have a relationship with the real Jesus, he will continue doing this to you. He will continue coming to you and pointing at things in your life that are broken and say, Man, that, that's, that's wrong. You're treating someone cheaply there. That, that, that's not for your joy. I have so much more for you than that. This is what the real and the resurrected and the living Jesus does. He points out what's broken in our life. Not because he's cruel, but because he loves you. And he doesn't want your life filled with sorrow. He doesn't want my life with sorrow. He doesn't want this world filled with sorrow. And so rather than sit in the comfort of heaven and watch us burn the world down, he leaves the comfort of heaven and comes to earth to lovingly engage us to step into our lives to show love, care, and concern. And out of that love, care, and concern begin to shine some light on some dark places. And that's what he's doing to these guys here. He says, you guys are wrong on two accounts. You neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. And, and let's just take those one at a time because both of these are important points that Jesus is making. And I think both of them bear reflection for us today. He says, number one, these guys don't know their Bibles. Um, Jesus' point here is what we said earlier. The Old Testament teaches the idea of the resurrection in several places, but these guys had missed it. Now, um, this is a hard pill for any believer to swallow, especially if you've been walking with God for any amount of time. If someone shows up and says, is this not why you are wrong? You don't know your Bible. You're going to be like, hey, buddy, that's not nice to say. I've read the whole thing. Um, particularly if you, like, you got to remember, the Sadducees are among the leaders in Israel. And so Jesus is saying to these guys, he's like, did you guys even read the book God gave you? Like, no, no wonder you're so confused. Like, God told you what you needed for life and godliness and flourishing, but you haven't read the book. Isn't this why you are wrong in treating these women so awfully in your hypothetical scenarios? If that goes on in your mind, gosh, what goes on in your life? Is this not why you are mistaken? You do not know the scriptures. Now, in order to um, show them what the scriptures say, Jesus doesn't go to what I would think are the obvious places. This is where we have to say, Jesus, smarter than Chad Francis. Um, if it were me, I'd go to Daniel 12, and I'd be like, did you see that? It says they're going to rise from the dirt of the ground to eternal life. Does that remind you of Genesis 1? The God who breathed life into the dirt and created humans is going to do it on the last day to create eternal humans. Like, come on, guys, this is not complicated, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't go to the obvious places. He points to Exodus chapter 3, what he calls the passage about the bush. Um, which is, it's, it's, it's interesting. They didn't have chapter numbers back then. So, so how would you identify? Jesus couldn't get up and say, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3 this morning. He would say, hey, open your scrolls. Or they probably didn't even have scrolls. They had it memorized. But hey, you know the passage about the bush? That's him saying Exodus chapter 3. This is where God first shows up to Moses. And, and, and some of you know this story. Um, We'll talk about it a little bit today, but what, he, what Jesus says is, hey, you know in the passage about the bush, when God spoke to Moses, did you catch what he said? He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Here, here's Jesus' point. 
He's saying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long since dead by the time you get to Exodus chapter 3. They died out in Genesis, hundreds of years before in Abraham's case. These guys were long since dead. So, fellas, if there's no life after death, God would have said, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But he didn't say that. He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, because there is life after death. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Now, that's, that's an incredible response. Um, First of all, because what Jesus just did is he proved the resurrection from the very small portion of scripture that these guys actually accepted, which I I think is just apologetically like a really brilliant move, that he doesn't ask them, hey, accept all the rest of this other stuff. He's like, if you guys just read the thing that you already believe, you would know this is true, which that's brilliant. I got to keep moving though. Um, He answers it from the portion of scripture they believe, but more important than that, I think Jesus answers His answer places the resurrection of the dead at the center of the nature and character of God. Because this passage about the bush, it's not just any old random text in the Old Testament. This is the text um, that was really at the center of the Jewish understanding of who God is. This is the text where God first shows up to Moses and says, I've seen what the Egyptians have done to my people. And I will not stand for injustice. I'm going to rise up and deliver you and to redeem you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. I'm going to defeat the greatest superpower in the world and all of their false gods and their powers. And I'm going to carry you out to the promised land. This is, this is that text where God shows up to, Ab- uh, to Moses and says, I am about to fulfill all the promises I've made to your forefathers. Let's go. It's time. This was like the John 3.16 for the Jewish people. That They knew this verse. This is how they thought about who God is. And if you know the story, what Moses says, you can go read it this week. Exodus chapter 3. Moses says, um, okay, so let's say I go to the people of Israel and say, God showed up to me in a burning bush. They're going to say, were you smoking a bush? Like, what's going on? No, 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 no. God spoke to me, guys. Who do I tell them sent me? Because Moses grew up in Egypt, a pluralistic society where there's lots of different gods. There's a sun god. There's a god of this. There's a god of the Nile. He says, which god are you? And God responds by saying, I am who I am. Or you could also translate that, I will be who I will be. Um, Which is just a fascinating statement for another time, but we're not preaching in Exodus 3. All I have to say today is that statement, that story is where the covenant name of God, Yahweh, comes from. Meaning, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. This is the text where God gave his people his covenant name. This is an incredible moment of revelation in the story of the Bible where God draws near to Moses and says, this is my name, walk with me. I'll be your God, you be my people. I will be who I am. I will save you from your enemies. And Jesus' whole point is the doctrine of the resurrection is wrapped up in it. So not only does the Bible teach the resurrection, not only is it in the small section of scripture that these guys actually accepted, but what Jesus is saying is the resurrection is taught in the most important place. At the center of our understanding of God must be this, 
that he is not the God of the dead, that he is the God of the living. And if you don't get this, you don't get God. If you don't get the resurrection, you'll hear this today, like, oh, I just followed Jesus because he's a good moral teacher, but I don't believe in the resurrection. Then you don't believe in Jesus. Because this was at the center of Jesus' imagination of who he is, of who God is. That God is a life giver. That when those who are in covenant with him, in relationship with him, die due to sin, God doesn't let that be the end. God rescues them from the grave and brings them to eternal life again. This is Jesus' point. It's not just that the Bible says it. It's that this is who God is. That by his very nature, he loves to bring new life where there was death. And that is a truth we see from the book of Genesis all the way through the end of the Bible. And and, and so this idea, Jesus is saying, not only do the scriptures teach it, it's at the center of the nature and character of God to be a life giver. And that really leads to his second point. So he says, number one, you neither understand the scriptures, nor, number two, you don't know the power of God. See, what he's saying is you doubt that there can be a resurrection. You doubt that there can be life after death because you are thinking in human terms. You're thinking of the resurrection as being a mere extension of life as we know it. But the resurrection, it's not going to be just an extension of life as we know it. The resurrection, it's going to be more than that. It's going to be entrance into a whole new level of existence. One where humans will live forever like the angels. Uh, one where um, even good gifts like marriage will no longer be needed. Now, um, I'll just be honest with you. I read that this week, and I did not like that. Um, I just, I just want to have some real talk with you. I, I, I read that about they're neither going to marry nor marry. Wait, there's no marriage in heaven? Like, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I like being married to Karen. I don't like the idea of going to a place where I'm not married to Karen. Some of you are like, that sounds like heaven. Sign me up right now. Don't raise your hand. Don't amen that. But let me just speak to those of you that maybe like me, you cringe a little bit about what Jesus just said there. Um, Jesus is big. He's not offended. He wants the real you to come to him this morning. So I want to just submit to you a couple of things that the Holy Spirit has really been helping me understand as I've wrestled with this idea of there not being marriage in heaven this week. Um, Number one, we have to read what Jesus just said in light of the entire New Testament. Otherwise, we're no better than the Sadducees that accept the one little part and not the whole. Um, Jesus on repeat, actually, it was just a couple chapters ago in Mark. I know several months ago for us because we took that break for Genesis, but Jesus had just affirmed what a good gift marriage is. What a good thing God has thought up with marriage. So Jesus loves marriage. He's very pro-marriage. But if you continue reading the New Testament, what you'll see, marriage is a good gift that's ultimately meant to tell us about a greater gift. That marriage, according to Ephesians chapter 5, is a shadow that's meant to tell us ultimately about God and his love for us. And so we have to read this idea of there not being marriage in heaven in light of that. So apparently, when we come to eternity and we see Christ face to face, um, apparently in that moment, when we stand in the glory of the substance of what marriage was always meant to point to, apparently in that moment, we will not need the shadow anymore because we stand in light of the substance. 
And look, that doesn't mean you're not going to have a special relationship with your spouse in glory. Jesus does not say that here. And in fact, if you read the rest of the New Testament, the way people uh, recognize the resurrected Jesus and so many other things, like his scars being present in his resurrected state, um, the Bible nowhere says you're not going to recognize the ones you love in heaven or have a special relationship with them. All Jesus is saying here is that when the fullness comes, the shadows won't be needed because you'll be standing in the substance and the light for which Mary was always created at its best to point. All Jesus is saying is that their question is misguided because they wrongly presume the institution of marriage will last into eternity, which apparently it will not because in eternity, when the fullness comes, the shadow is not needed in the same way. And look, I know that's wild. I know some of you are like spinning right now. You may need to wrestle with this with the Holy Spirit like I did this week. Um, But if I could just say one more thing to you, as I wrestled, one of the things I realized is I believe this is what makes the, this is part of what makes the Christian teaching about the resurrection unique from every other religion. Um, Because here's what you got to realize, the idea of resurrection, life after death, is not unique to Christianity. Um, Your Buddhist friends, for example, will tell you that life is cyclical. And so when you die, you get reincarnated, you live again and again and again and again and on and on and on, which sounds great when you're really young. And you go, oh, this is awesome. I get get more lives than a cat. This is great. Hope I don't come back as a cat. But here's the the thing. Um, When you live a little and you bleed a little and you begin to see just how broken this world is, I think that begins to sound a lot more like hell than heaven. Which is why in the Buddhist mindset, the ultimate goal is not reincarnation. The goal is to achieve significant enlightenment, to get to nirvana, where you can end the whole cycle and cease to be. No wonder they named a grunge band after it. So so that's the Buddhist idea of life after death. They believe, your Buddhist friends will believe in life after death, just not in the same way that Jesus does. Now, and, and it's not just Buddhism or Hinduism, which that kind of came out of, but take another popular religion today. Your Muslim friends, they will tell you, no, 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 all that's wrong. Life is not cyclical. Uh, life is linear. You live once, you die, and then if you go to heaven, well, then marriage will be there because marriage is good, right? What could be better than the goods of this world? And, and so this is the idea. In fact, um, in the Muslim depiction of heaven, uh, not only is marriage there, but um, like, man, if you were really good in this life, you could get 70 virgins. So there's a lot of marriage there. It sounds very different than the Buddhist idea, but here's why I will argue it's all fundamentally the same idea. Because what your Buddhist friend and your Muslim friend have in common is they have this shared assumption that life after death will be an extension of life in this world. And, and so if there is life after death, it'll just be either a new cycle of life here or um, more marriages and more of the good things that we already know in this world. And Jesus steps in and says, no, your thinking is too small. You know not the power of God. God is so much greater than that. The resurrection, it's not just going to be an extension of life in this world where maybe there's some mild improvements made. It will be the entrance into something beyond it. It's a life where the very best things in this world, like marriage at its best, 
like um, the sweetest foods you'll ever take, like, like the moments where you feel the most alive to your purpose and what you were made for. Those moments when life in this world is at its best are mere glimpses and shadows of the world that God is preparing for us. And so what Jesus says is the resurrection, it's not just an extension of this life, it's the elevation to a new level of life that your mind doesn't even have the categories to comprehend but I will say this think of the best thing you can imagine that's a shadow of what's coming that's the Christian view of resurrection Um, C.S. Lewis captures this so well at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia Um, after the kids die um, which spoiler alert that book's been out 60 plus years okay I'm not spoiling anything here after the kids die and leave uh, uh, what Lewis calls the shadow lands of this world After they leave the Shadowlands behind, here's what Aslan, the great lion, says to them. He says to them, "Uh, good news, the term is over and the holidays have begun. The dream has ended and this is the morning. And the way that last book ends is by saying their entire lives in this world and in Narnia were just the title page in the great story that they now begin chapter 1 in the great story where every chapter and every page is greater than the one that came before that. And Lewis says, I can't even write to you of how amazing that story is. You won't know until you're there, but it's there and it's real and it's the difference of being stuck in the grind of going to school. What you remember how awful that was when you were a kid? It's the difference between that and going to holiday at sea. That's what Jesus saying here like fellas the resurrection it's not just a continuation of the grind and the struggle of this world it's the entrance into a new kind of world a new kind of life not one that leaves behind the good parts of this world but where the good parts of this world are present in fuller ways than you can even imagine that's what jesus is teaching here resurrection life is going to be greater than the highest highs you can experience in this life and here's the kicker it's going to go on forever you'll be like the angels in heaven or like daniel said the stars above that shine on forever this world will not end it will get better and better and better and better and if you believe that then it has to change how you see your life here and now And this is where I want to return to where we began, to that little throwaway statement that your view of the afterlife gives shape to your life. Because if you believe what Jesus just taught, like, man, that's got to give shape to your life. And and, and notice I didn't say your theology of the afterlife shapes your life. I said your view of the afterlife. Because here's what I was uh, thinking about this week as I sat with this text. Um, I think while I have the theology of Jesus, my vision is often closer to, the Holy Spirit's checking me right now. I'm going to say my vision's closer to Hugh Hefner's. I don't mean that in terms of the publication, but in terms of that quote where he's thinking all about this world. He's not thinking about the world to come. And and I wonder for you if you could resonate with that, where we might have the theology of Jesus, but the perspective of Hugh Hefner. Where, where if you ask us on our statement of faith, I believe in the resurrection, but if we look at your last week and the things that went on in your heart, we would not be able to discern the difference between your heart and that of someone that, like our boy Hugh, does not believe in the resurrection. And so I want to discern right now between the difference between your theology of the afterlife and your view of the afterlife. Because so many times I think 
um, we live out of step with what we believe in our heart of hearts. And I think there's an invitation from Jesus this morning um, to align our lives a little more fully with what we believe to be true. To instead of be totally focused on this life as if we could have no certainty about what's coming next, to maybe let what we know by faith is coming next inform how we live our lives in this world. Does that kind of make sense? And um, I think the big question that we all need to wrestle with today is if you believe that resurrection life is coming, that's going to be greater than the highest highs of this world, that's going to go on forever, if you, if you believe that, then how does that belief give shape to your life here and now? Um, frankly, I think the entire New Testament is written to answer that question. So I don't want to be coy, but I'm like, how should that shape our lives? Let's start at Matthew 1, let's get to Revelation 21, and we'll, we'll spend our lives figuring it out. But um, as I prayed and I said, Lord, I want to be practical. I want to, I want to share something that might help our church today. Um, I felt like the Lord put two, two differences, two things that I just want to submit to you to process with the Holy Spirit this morning. Two ways that this truth has got to change how we see our lives. Um, and it's going to relate to courage and joy. Let me talk first about courage. Um, I think if you believe what Jesus just said about life after death, this has to put steel in your bones. Um, I'm reading a book right now about the history of the Jesus movement. And one of the things that just amazes me is the way that men and women um, have stood firm for their faith um, in cultures all over the world throughout history in the face of flames, wild animals, and guillotines. That when they're told, hey, deny Christ or we're going to kill you, Men and women who otherwise would look fairly unimpressive all of a sudden have the strength to say, no, I'm not going to do that, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Like, I've just been amazed by reading. I don't know if you ever feel that way, but like, what would I do if I were in that moment? See, I, it makes no sense unless they believe this reality, that the worst thing those persecuting them could do would be to throw them into the arms of eternity and live forever with the fullness of the substance for which they've spent their lives hoping. And, and i got to be really honest with you. I don't think we're ready for that. Um, I don't think I'm ready for that. Like, I love Jesus, but I don't know if they threaten the life of someone I love, what I would do in that moment. And I think it's really causing me to wrestle. Do I really believe what Jesus has said about resurrection life? Or is this life all there is? Because the way you answer to that question has got to put steel in your bones when push comes to shove. And look, I know that sounds kind of apocalyptic, um, I don't just mean in ultimate moments of life and death. One of the other things you see in the history of the Jesus movement is uh, men and women of God courageously standing for justice and truth in ages where people are told they're regressive and backwards for standing for that, to be courageous and stand up for that. There was a certain courage that came knowing that they believed that eternity was just around the corner. And, and let's take it back to the quote I opened with. Hugh Hefner believed we don't know what's coming next, and that gave a certain shape to his life. He felt a certain freedom to use and abuse women and build an entire empire off of exploiting women. And I think in the church today, there are a lot of people who maybe lack the courage to see that for what it is and to stand up and say no. 
Sex trafficking is a serious issue in this world. Pornography, as one pastor will say, is a justice issue. But we don't stand up because the culture says this is freedom, this is liberation. It's not freedom. It's slavery. And the people of God, just like we said about slavery hundreds of years ago, need to stand up again and say, you're a daughter, you are loved, that is not accepted. We need to find our courage again, church. But I think we lack courage because our visions not on the future and so we live just like the world around us and 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 you could apply that to a thousand other things with courage i want to leave that one with the holy spirit to process that more with you the other thing i've been thinking about this week is this has got to somehow affect our joy like um if i could put a date on the return of christ would you live your life differently let me just ask you this would you live differently like if i could tell you June 21st, he's coming back. Eternity begins. Would you be as stressed out about the things you were presently stressed out about this morning? See, um, I don't think you would. I don't think I would. This is something the Holy Spirit's really been working on in me. Now, this isn't going to be that kind of sermon because we can't put the date on it. Jesus already said, no one knows the date. I'm going to come. It's going to be a surprise. So if anyone says the date, they're a liar. This is not going to be that kind of sermon. But my point is this, whether it's 10 days from now or 10 months from now or 10 years from now or 100 years from now, this is the day we have coming for us. Either we will die and meet Jesus face to face or Jesus will return while we're still living. I'm kind of hoping for that one. That sounds rad. Either way, we enter into eternity eventually. And I don't say this to make light of the problems in your life, because look, I know we're all going through a lot right now. But I do believe that most of us spend our time focused on things that just won't matter 10,000 years from now. And if we, this is our view of the afterlife, that we are going to live forever. Everything sad's going to come untrue. The shadows will give way to the substance. Then I think... That's got to put our present struggles into perspective. It doesn't mean that we deny them. I just think we, it's less able to um, suck the joy out of us. I think we might be a little bit more like the early followers of Jesus who said, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We see brokenness in the world around us and yet we're not giving up hope because we know what is coming. Um, I want to share with you how a Christian from history put it. Listen to how Richard Baxter um, put it, because he's, he's a lot more um, eloquent than me. He said this, Oh, that Christians would learn to live with one eye on Christ crucified and the other on his coming in glory. If everlasting joys were more in your thoughts, spiritual joys would abound more in your hearts. No wonder you are comfortless when heaven is forgotten. When Christians let fall their heavenly expectations but heighten their earthly desires, they are preparing themselves for fear and trouble. Who has met with a distressed, complaining soul where either a low expectation of heavenly blessings or too high a hope for joy on the earth is not present? What keeps us under trouble is either we do not expect what God has promised or we expect what he did not promise. I think he's nailed it right there. I can't think of a moment when I've been distressed where my vision has been on what's coming. It's when my vision is sucked down to the things of this world. 
And, and look, our, our, our boy Hugh would say to that, like, well, you can't know what's coming. You can't live like that. That's wishful thinking. But what Jesus says is, yes, you can. Not only do the scriptures tell us what's coming, not only is this at the center of God's nature and character, but the life of Jesus proves it. You have to remember where the whole gospel of Mark is heading. At the end of this week, Jesus is going to prove everything he just said to the Sadducees by going to the cross and by dying in our place for our sins so that when he rose on the third day, he could say to all people, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever would believe in me, whoever would call upon my name, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and say, save me, give me life, I will raise him up on the last day. I will give him a new and eternal life that begins now, but really blooms and flourishes in eternity. And so, um, if you're anxious, if you are distressed, if you are lacking courage, if you are lacking joy, then I would submit to you the only answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to believe that God so loved you that he sent his only son in the world to take on the death we deserve, to give us a life we could never earn or produce for ourselves. Isn't this John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how you're struggling right now, whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the only answer to the anxiety that we feel today. That's the only answer to our struggles. And so here's, here's what we're going to do. I, I want to leave room for the Holy Spirit to apply that specifically where you need it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take some time to respond to this message. Um, we're going to, just like we do every week, we're going to sing songs about what Christ has done for us. And then we are going to take communion. When you are ready, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've called on him, if you've put your faith in him, I want to encourage you to take the communion elements in front of you and to remember that your hope for eternity, it's not wishful thinking. It is blood bought through the blood of Christ and that he did not stay empty, but the empty tomb, or he did not stay dead, but the empty tomb proves that this day is already invading this broken world and it is just a matter of time before this day takes over completely. So we're going to sing songs about what Christ has done. We're going to take communion to um, celebrate this truth together. And then we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to work this truth a little more deeply in our bones that we might live a little bit more like Jesus and a little less like Hugh Hefner, that we might have a little bit more of Jesus's view of the afterlife than what is so often our view of the afterlife of I don't know, that we might walk out of here with the type of gospel confidence that we'd say, I do know because I know him. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you've so loved us that you sent your son. God, I'm well aware that the reason that the resurrection is such a struggle for us is because it seems to defy reality. We do not deserve life. We deserve death. I thank you that your love is stronger than what we deserve, that your grace reaches farther um, than our performance, that you sent your son so that you could give us eternal life as a gift. And so, Father, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit right now to um, help us be honest with you this morning. Uh, would you draw out the areas of our life where maybe we don't really have confidence that your grace is big enough to buy our pardon, to buy our place into glory? 
Would you reveal that area of our heart and then apply the gospel? Would you get our eyes up onto the victory of Christ? Would you help us to believe that there's no sin with more power than his cross, that there's nothing able to separate us from your love this morning? Would you, um, would you make the gospel a little bit more real to each and every person this morning, right where we need it, that we might walk out of here with the kind of resurrection hope that your people have walked in historically, that we might be light in the midst of darkness, not out of any sense of duty, but out of an overflow of the light in us because of Christ. So help us work these things in a little deeper into our bones. We ask that you do all these things in his beautiful name. Amen.